The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I'm so excited. I have Leslie Schrock with me today, and she is an investor and entrepreneur. Why is that on a birth circle birth podcast? You will find out. But thank you, Leslie, so much for joining me today. Let's dive right in. Thanks for having me. So first of all, tell us, how did you get into the whole birth world? How, how, how did this become your passion? I think... As with many people, I uh, chose to start a family and found out that that process was not necessarily as easy as I thought it would be. Um, So I, your intro already kind of covered the high points. I've been working in health and tech for um, about a decade now. And when it came time to, you know, start the process of having kids, I thought, oh man, this is easy. Everybody does it like this. How hard can it be? Right. And then I found out what all of us inevitably find out uh, after we become parents, which is it's rarely very straightforward. Um, inevitably, something is going to go wrong. Uh, and in my case, uh, it took three pregnancies and 16 months to get my son here. And uh, that process, you know, the, I, I had a miscarriage around six weeks. The second pregnancy we found out wasn't viable due to a chromosomal abnormality. Um, And, you know, even though the pregnancy was going to end on its own in a matter of weeks, uh, we still had to technically terminate it, which was just this like, like head explosion moment for me. You know, it was a wanted pregnancy. It was uh, not something I wanted, but they were like, you don't really have a choice. I mean, you can wait, but it would be much better for you and for future pregnancies if you just went ahead and, you know, did this. So there I was. Um, and then finally my son got here and, um, you know, that's been awesome. He's 15 months old now. It's really incredible. Um, but you know, I said to myself, Oh my gosh, like if it's this hard for me, someone who has tons of resources and tons of connections and tons of, you know, like I know tons of doctors and like, I can call them up whenever I feel like it to ask questions. But I just kept thinking like, if it's this hard for me, what is it like for everyone else? Yeah. And so, um, you know, kind of midstream, uh, I guess I was, I was in the first trimester with my son actually. And I met my publisher at Simon and Schuster. And I just kind of said, you know, I talked to a friend about an idea And I just said, you know, like, I think all the books about birth are really, um, they're really judgmental. They're really kind of rooted in uh, this narrative that like everything's peaches and cream. And I just don't think it's like that for most people. And I think we should be really honest about, you know, the good and the bad parts of, of pregnancy and starting a family. And so I wrote my book, Bumpin', which covers, um, the period of time from the time you decide to conceive to the postpartum period, because as we all know, after we go through that whole thing, uh, that (laughs) rarely, I mean, who tells you about night sweats? Nobody, nobody, nobody. So, um, you know, so yeah, I, and it was honestly, it was such a labor of love, literally and figuratively, you know, I wrote it in real time while I was pregnant. I then wrote the postpartum period and my first six weeks postpartum, which was a real adventure. Um, but really my goal is to just have a more honest conversation 
about what we do know and what we don't know uh, about, um, you know, pregnancy and having babies and do it in a way that's not judgmental. I don't like to tell people what to do. I like to say, here's the data. You can decide for yourself what's right for you and your family, because, you know, as you know, from, from doing this, like there is no one right way to become a parent. Exactly. And you have a very interesting background in that you, uh, a very robust business background. You helped grow Rock Health, a startup accelerator. So tell us about that. And then I want to, I want to get some questions asked about how the modern birth industry really works. How, how does, no, (laughs) the machine, the industrial complex. Yeah. Yeah, The industrial complex. I mean, I don't even have words. So we are leaving the room of the affirmations and the glowing candles and we're going now into the hardcore. (laughs) Oh yeah. Industrial. They all have their place, but yeah, yeah. So Rock Health, um, was also born probably about a decade ago. Um, I actually made the move into healthcare out of my own health problems. So again, I get kind of personally motivated by something and then I uh, have to do uh, do something about it. And so in this case, uh, I was 27 and I had some really serious gut problems and it took five years of doctors not really listening to me and saying, oh, it's inevitably IBS or, oh, it's your cycle or, oh, it's this. Uh, to finally get a colonoscopy when I was really, really sick. Uh, And for them to say, well, congratulations, you have um, a form of irritable bowel disorder called ulcerative colitis. And you now have to change the way you eat, the way you live. You have to make all of these changes to your life. And I just thought like, but I'm, I'm pretty healthy already. Like, how can this be happening to me? 27 year olds aren't supposed to fall apart like that. No, 27 year olds aren't supposed to get colonoscopies. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, but there I was. And so I, that was the first meaningful interaction I ever had with the healthcare, uh, industry really. Um, you know, I was going in getting a colonoscopy. It was like me and a bunch of like 70 year olds. And I just kept thinking like, God, this experience, it sucks. Like, this Mm -hmm. is not good. The design of this is not good you know, the way the doctor talks to me is, is not really that great either. Uh, Cause I didn't, I didn't feel empowered at that time to really advocate for myself and to, you know, kind of navigate that dynamic, which all of us know, which is, you know, the doctor is the expert and we are just the lowly patient. And, you know, this is like another big part of my work actually is just, you know, I'm a strong believer in medicine. I uh, know tons of doctors. I've had amazing care, but I've also had to be my own advocate um, and really not be afraid to ask questions and challenge, uh, you know, challenge care and ask why and all of these things. And really, that was kind of where that started. Um, and so, you know, Rock Health was born kind of out of a need for more designers and developers and business professionals, really, who didn't have a strong healthcare background, but who knew how to build compelling products and services um, to do that. Uh, to go in there to start companies. And so, um, you know, Rock Health has since launched, I don't even know how many companies now, uh, hundreds certainly, uh, who have gone on to raise, I think, a couple billion dollars in venture funding at this point. Uh, And it's been a real joy to watch. You know, I was there for about three years um, and since then have been working kind of one-on-one with companies, um, the majority of which are in women's health now. Um, on everything from their identity to fundraising and pitching investors. I'm also an angel investor. So I've, I've done some, a bunch of deals uh, personally now, which is a lot of fun. Um, but really just, you know, companies that are challenging uh, what we think 
care should look like. So Maven is a great example of this, um, you know, telemedicine for families. I use it all the time. I have since the beginning. Um, but you know, if you have a question about a rash, like for your kid or for you, uh, in my case, like I had this weird rash on my back. Turns out it was from something that the dry cleaner put on our clothes. And I had my my iPhone and I just pointed at my back and I said, do I need hydrocortisone? Or like, what is this? Is this yeah. like something I should be worried about? You know, and they were like, no, nah, no, nah, you're good. It's just, you know, it's, it's a I know with COVID, a lot of doctors moving to telehealth. Um, I had my first yeah. with my doctor who would never have, would have never considered it before. But yeah, yeah sending him a, a screenshot. It, <laughs> Yeah. And telehealth adoption has jumped a decade in, you know, the last months because of COVID. And I'm Mm -hmm. really hopeful that, you know, it's not a perfect system. It's not, it does not reach all um, populations in an equitable fashion, which we know healthcare already does not, but telehealth certainly doesn't improve some of that, um, some of that inequity, but um, I'm hopeful that it will begin to scale care, especially to those who are in, you know, rural areas who may not have yeah. the same access to care with hospitals closing, all these things. So, you know, Maven's or a good example of- Or even inner city, like the ability to drive across town or, you know, to get child right. care to drive across town, like this can really- Yeah. So while yes, it and prenatal care. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yes, for sure. Oh, yeah. That was my next yeah. question. So what were some of the ventures, the startups that you saw come through that were related specifically to women in the childbearing years and well, what issues maybe- were they- Yeah, Maven specifically started actually to deal with pregnancy. So it was a women's health telehealth company um, to begin with, but uh, they've since gone on to really serve, you know, the full life cycle. You can be, you know, you can be a girl going through puberty and you can use Maven. It's really for anyone in the family. Um, And, you know, they have pediatricians, they have over 20 different practitioner types. So Maven's a great example, I think, of, of, of a company that's, you know, they've been around since I think 2015, 2014, can't remember anymore, but um, Maven's a great example. Origin is another um, company that I think is phenomenal. Um, you know, the founder, uh, Kareen, uh, really came to this idea, and this is something that I feature a lot in my book, actually, because as any of us who have had children know, uh, leaking is a real issue and no one <laughs> talks about it because hardly anybody even knows what their pelvic floor is. Um, you know, so Corrine had a lifetime of painful sex and didn't even know there was a problem or there was anything she could do about it. And so Origin is, um, you know, they have an in-person clinic in LA uh, where you can go and get pelvic floor therapy, women's health, uh, physical therapy in general. But really, I think their big mission, um, well, it's certainly my bent. I'm an advisor to the company. So it's uh, my my mission after having written this book to really make women aware not only of what on earth their pelvic floor is, which really like, do you know what it is? Um, the muscles and the bones that hold all of the guts in right there. You did better than most of the people I quiz <laughs> <laughs> because it's, you know, when I was doing in-person events for my book tour, um, you know, this was like a question I asked every single time. So I'd say, how many of you know who, you know, where, what your pelvic floor is and like everyone would raise their hand and I'd say, oh my God, amazing. Tell me what it is. And I'd just call on someone randomly and they're like, ah, that thing with Kegels, right? Like you squeeze your butt and I'm like, no, 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 no. Because one third of women can't do Kegels correctly uh, without formal instruction. It's really quite, uh, quite crazy. So you, you win. It is the bowl-shaped set of uh, muscles that supports your internal organs like your uterus. And they get very stretched during pregnancy. 
And, you know, hey, I know there are a lot of second and third time moms listening. Like leaking is normal in the sense that it happens, but you can absolutely do something about it. Um, you can rehabilitate your pelvic floor. So that's yes. what Origin's doing. Yeah. A previous guest said it, it may be normal, but it's not natural. So, yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just because and, you had gut problems doesn't mean it 20, it should be. 27 year old should that's not normal, but no, no. And, and there is something you can do about it. And I think that's what we need to, that's really what we need to do is, you know, spread awareness, um, you know, tell people like, listen, yes, it happens. It happens to most everyone, but you can do something about it. You don't have to live with panty liners for the rest of your life. Yep. Over half of women will end up with some kind of pelvic floor dysfunction. It's usually attributed to birth. It also happens in menopause. Um, but you know, you, we can do something about this. And then I heard this. some terrible things about the mesh and what the mesh does, the, the surgeries to, quote, correct these issues. <gasps> yeah. So there are over 300,000 so surgeries every year, and about a third of them are second or third time surgeries to correct the same issue. Ooh. Vaginal mesh, it's not even a thing anymore. It's Let's really not. bad. It's yeah. Really pessaries bad. are generally like the first line of defense with that if you go with a surgical option. But um, yeah, I mean, look, like there are all of these, I feel like there are all these aspects of women's health that we're told are like normal and they're not normal. Normal. Um, um, yeah. But, but because, you know, we're women, we just kind of deal with it. Like yes. this is our, this is our world, right? So in your experience working in tech and uh, venture capitalism, and I mean, I kind of know what you're going to say, but have you come up against um, discrimination based on, on like, that women's health just isn't cool to talk about that, that investors don't really want to explore solutions for women's health because they don't see it as I know for birth circle, as we've sought funding and support, it's been really an interesting journey to kind of try to explain why giving women the attention for nine months is so such a big deal. I've had male investors flat out tell me, why would you focus on a, a market that's only viable for six or seven months and then they fizzle out? And I'm like, oh, really? Like, yeah, you're really not interested? lifetime healthcare problems? <laughs> like, yep. Well, and, and also, I mean, what we do as moms affects our children's buying habits and affects everything. Like, why wouldn't you want to get in with the most powerful influencer in the world, which is a mom? But these, yep. these investors are like, well, that's just... That, that life cycle, that sales cycle is too short. Like you can't do anything with it. <laughs> yeah, well, and they don't, they don't see it as a wedge. I mean, look, like pregnancy is the first time many women meaningfully engage with their health. So it's a oh, great true. wedge into the rest of the, the rest of the, the life cycle, right? This is a, here, you can use this in your next investor pitch. Um, it, but yeah, it's a great wedge. It's a great time to intercede and make women more, um, you know, aware of what's going on with their bodies, ongoing issues, but it's also kind of like too late. So I think this is what people are starting to realize. And there's uh, beginning to be a conversation about this, which is many women go into pregnancy with existing issues with chronic conditions that end up uh, responsible for the rising C-section rate, for you know all of the crazy issues that can happen during and after pregnancy. Um, so you know we're we're starting to see, I think, a real shift in the conversation there. But um, I mm. will say that I think you know women's health back in 2010. Talk about a thing that no one wanted to invest in and no one wanted to talk about because no one even wants to say the word vagina. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, if you can't say vagina, why on earth would you invest in women's health? Um, or if you have to say, oh, maybe I should ask my wife or my girlfriend if she'd actually use that. 
Um, but I do think things are changing. I think companies like Maven that are proving there's a real need, there's a real business behind it. Um, people will pay for it. I think COVID has changed, um, you know, this conversation quite a bit. And women's health is going to be a $50 billion market by 2025. So there's like another, I hate the term femtech. I think it's like, are we in an Austin Powers movie? Like, what is this? Are we like, pew, pew, like boobs that shoot stuff? I mean, I mean, <laughs> well, maybe that would be helpful. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but it, it does feel like to me, um, you know, between COVID and the rising, you know, the rising success of companies like Maven that are really proving that it not only, you know, helps save the system money, it really transforms the quality of, of families' lives and is a great benefit to, you know, give to employees. Um, you know, the rise of telehealth, all of these things. I think that women's health is finally turning a corner mm-hmm. because people see that it's such a great business, but we still have work to do. Um, we still have a ton just, of work. Yeah. Well, and how many studies are actually carried out only on women? I, I know that most scientific studies are carried out on men. Most formulations are carried out on men, right? Like case studies. Do you, do you, know, the, do you know the history? Clinical trials? No, tell me. Well, yeah. So the history, it's, it's really interesting. I'm working on a new book right now, and uh, this is kind of the basis of it, which is that women are still not represented in clinical trials. Uh, we're still wildly underrepresented. And it all stems from the reality that since the time of the ancient Greeks, women's bodies were not the ones that were studied. Uh, the first cadavers back in the time of you know Aristotle were men. It was criminals. It was soldiers. It really wasn't women. Um, and we're not you know, just case, little men. We're not just, yeah. Curvy men. <laughs> well, right. And our, our ovaries are not, uh, female testicles. That's one of my personal favorites. Ah. Eggs, eggs are not, uh, you know, female sperm. It's, oh, that's so uh, cute yeah. that they, Oh, I know. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I mean, it persisted for a long time. Even Freud had some crazy ideas about, you know, women's bodies, even in the 20th century. But, uh, the thing that I think, you know, that set the stage women's bodies have never been studied at the same uh, rate as men's, but the real issue recently was thalidomide. So it was the birth con- um, birth defect causing drug. It was used to treat morning sickness. And um, finally, like I think it was in the early seventies, they discovered that this was happening, but basically it caused women to be excluded from clinical trials. Yeah. Women of, <gasps> yeah. That's women why. of childbearing age. I know women were excluded from clinical trials for 16 years and it's only like the 1990s that really women were allowed in. So women of childbearing age were not allowed legally to participate. And this is really wow. bad because women metabolize drugs differently. Yeah. Um, and when you start doing the math, you know, uh, it takes about 17 years for clinical research to make it, uh, make itself into um, actual care. So we're like still kind of suffering from these years where no research was done. And the uh, thing that's on, interesting about the, 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 sorry, I just can't say it today. Thalidomide. The, thalidomide. Um, and I was watching this documentary that it actually never became um, a, a, really a big deal in the United States. It was mostly over in Europe because there was somebody in the FDA, a woman who just refused to um, give it the clearance here in the United States. So I find it interesting that something that didn't even affect us that badly in the United States is now still affecting us really badly in the United States. Right. Oh my yeah, gosh. It, it affected a lot of babies here too, but it was, it Not was as a much. worldwide problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
but I mean, we're still excluded largely um, from a lot of clinical trials now. Um, you know, we just, it, and part of it's like women don't volunteer as much. There are lots and lots of reasons, um, you know, and we've got that issue, right? We've got the issue that, you know, uh, women don't do it. But then we also have another huge issue, which is that, you know, women of color really are not in, uh, included in clinical trials. And that dynamic has to change. Yeah. What all the, the, the thing like that, um, people with darker skin don't feel pain the same way or that redheads feel pain more or like really, really. We think a lot of crazy things. Yeah. (laughs) Brudettes have more fun. Isn't that how it goes? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, um, but you are seeing things change. I mean, you mentioned 2010, that's not that long ago. So even in the last 10 years, you're seeing, um, companies, pay attention more to women's more, health? More companies, more companies, um, more investors, um, you know, more entrepreneurs who are going into this space. Um, you know, the, the amount, uh, like the market size, I think is one of the things driving so much investment, but also proof that it works. I think we needed a couple companies like Maven to come along and really prove the space before more people were willing to start taking bets. And so, you know, and Maven's doing extremely well. So um, it's really kind of saying like, hey, fertility. I, I think, you know, the other thing that's really changing is that we're starting to talk about, and this was one of the goals of writing my book, um, which is that like, we're talking about the reality. Like when women uh, have babies in their thirties, that dynamic is different. It is not the same as, you know, 1984 when the average age of first time moms was 24 in mm-hmm. the U.S., Um, It's now 27 nationally, but it's like in the early 30s, like 31 in New York and San Francisco. Um, So, Hmm. you know, we have to acknowledge the challenges that come with women having children later. Like I I actually just had another miscarriage a month ago. um, Hmm. And, you know, like I'm almost, I'll be 38 next week. You know, I know that like I don't have unlimited time here. Plenty of women get pregnant in their 40s. Um, But, you know, like I've had a challenging road, so I'm going to have to, you know, get back on it. But I kind of know that that's what I'm dealing with. There's something going on with me. Maybe it could just be bad luck, but, you know, it could also just be age. So I think that, you know, we also have to acknowledge we live in a different world. We live in a world where women work longer, where women, you know, wait longer to have, uh, you know, children. Um, we're expected to work up until the day we give birth, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, and we're expected to go like 25% of women go back to work within 10 days of birth. I don't know about you. I had a C-section. I was a hot mess express. <laughs> I don't know how I would have gone back to work. I, I had like, yeah, I, I lost 20 pounds of fluid three days within, um, three days after birth. Oh my it was goodness. crazy. Yeah. That is a hot mess. But a lot of hot women, mess. I'd say most women are going back to work not because they want to, but because they have to. And that's just Correct. so frustrating. Yep. So based on the trajectory of the last 10 years, where do you think we're going to be in 2030? What what kind of... 2030? Yeah. I think women's health will only continue to grow because it's it's going to be so much more than women's health. It's going to be family health because mm-hmm. the decisions women make for themselves influence their daughters it influences their sons too. Um, but you know, we, women, that's 80% a good percent of the healthcare decisions. Yeah. So like when they Absolutely. say, if you want to feed, uh, if you want to feed a village or what is it, if you want to educate, I don't know, you you educate a woman or you, you teach a woman and she will teach her whole family. Um, yes. the same thing with health. So maybe that's, that's one of the keys to this health crisis we're having in this country is just to yes. respect birth. <gasps> 
I love that platform. <laughs> and educate and educate women. I mean, and the other thing is like women don't get any kind of formal education about their bodies. Um, we don't have hard conversations with our nope. with our kids. It's like, oh God, the sooner this conversation is over, the better for everyone. Well, because we conflate health, uh, health and anatomy with sexual deviancy. Like, can we just not talk about sexual crap and just talk about biology? Like, my girls understand their body parts, not because it's been comfortable for me to teach because I was raised in the whole shame, shame culture, but but because it's really important that if my daughter has an owie, I want to know about it. I don't want a UTI to go un- undetected right. because my girl doesn't actually have the vocabulary. And we've been there, the little one. When How, how do you give your girls vocabulary to describe exactly what's hurting, what's yep. burning, what's itching? Yes. And yes. if she can't even talk about her, her body, then how is she going to tell me when she has flu symptoms? Like- oh, I know. Well, I'm, this is, this is exactly, you're exactly right. I mean, this is, this is such a huge, it's exactly what I'm writing about right now, um, you know, which is that because we don't call body parts by their names, because we don't give, we say like, oh, you know, down there or, you know, your, your bits and pieces or whatever, like from day one, my son, I'm like, oh, you've discovered your penis. Like, oh, you're pulling on your penis. Like, I just call it what it is because Mm -hmm. if he doesn't know the right term for his anatomy, like, how's he going to communicate it with a doctor later? And I think normalizing it from a very early age, you know, and it's not like totally comfortable all the time. I'm like, oh my God, I'm talking, like my son is just like sitting there pulling on his penis. Like this is totally weird. I've talked about this in another episode about my child. I had a, a very gregarious child and he would just no filter, right? And so we didn't use the anatomical terms early on just because I needed him to be protected. Because when he'd go up to somebody at 18 months and go, you have such beautiful milkies. It's a lot cuter than saying <laughs> you have such beautiful breasts. That sounds a little bit coming from a two-year-old, That's three-year-old, funny. right? Right. Yep. He was just really into his milkies. And so like I saw that and real quick in the in in my mothering career. But as but I still wanted to give them language surrounding it. You know, yeah. like my when my daughter says, Oh, I hope I have um, you know, I hope that my body's as beautiful as yours, mom. And like, oh, we're winning. We're winning. I don't yeah. feel that about myself. But if she sees that I feel that about myself, then we're winning because the way that's, I teach her to talk about her body. <laughs> that's exactly right. Even if yeah, she doesn't have a tan on an anatomical terms, but be her being able to pick out her clothing and, and decide how she wants to treat her body. And yeah, if she's sick or if something's hurting, well, like she had a bee sting the other day and just having that conversation, I didn't pin her to the ground and pull out the stinger. We had to like go through this whole thing where she had to be ready for the quote unquote surgery. <laughs> yeah. And just having, you know, autonomy over her body. Yeah. Well, I mean, and we don't, we don't talk about it with boys either, which is why everyone learns everything about the human body on like Reddit or from like the weird kid down the street or, you know, <laughs> from YouTube. Like I, we just, we yeah. don't educate children about their bodies. I um, mean, we don't, we certainly don't educate them about the opposite sex. It's like, all you have is the school nurse with the banana and the condom. And that's like it. And most parents don't talk about that either. Well, and that's and most even parents, male centered. What does that teach yeah. a girl about her body? I know. Well, just how to prevent getting pregnant. I mean, that's it. Pregnancy prevention. That's basically what a lot of these sex ed classes are. And it really shouldn't be sex ed. It should be body ed. It should yeah. be like, here's what a normal period is. A period's not gross. Um, it's normal. Half the population yeah. gets one. 
you know, here's how to take care of yourself. Here's how to tell if something's wrong. You know, here's what a UTI is. Um, we don't talk about any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Most parents don't talk about that stuff with their kids unless there's a problem. Yeah. Um, so I really, I, I would love to see this dynamic change. I think that part of the reason we have such terrible healthcare problems in this country is just there's a complete lack of connection uh, between ourselves and our bodies. And part of it, yes. this very basic thing is, is education. Well, if you can't, like I said, if you can't, as a seven-year-old, tell your mom you have a UTI, how are you going to tell your OB that you feel really uncomfortable? Right. Whatever. Like I've, I've had friends confide in me, like, I'm super embarrassed. I don't want to ask my mom, but like, it feels like my vagina is falling out. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's because of da, da, da. Or, or I have a huge purple dot on my labia. What is that? I'm like, oh, it's a varicose vein. You know, like they don't even, right. well, they don't even say labia. They don't even know the word labia. And Most people just, don't know the difference between how the vagina can, and... Yeah. How can you ask for help, especially when you're viewing your healthcare provider as a guru? How can you yep. like ask for help if you don't know? Oh my gosh, I'm just so fired up and mad. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, me too. It's, it's, you know, I think, what was it? There was a poll done... 60% of women didn't know the difference between a vagina and a vulva. And then 40% couldn't find a vagina on a diagram, on a medical diagram. They couldn't pin the tail on the donkey, so to speak. Oh so, dear. Yeah, we have a real problem. I mean, I, and you don't need to know like every single micro body part, but I think that some basic awareness of like, okay, the vagina is on the inside of the body, actually. Um, that's what that is. It's not actually this, you know, the lips, the, the anything on the yeah. outside. It's just, yeah, but it's, well, it's I mean, you know, I, I was in my third pregnancy before I learned that you could actually touch your, touch your own cervix. Like, hello. I had like given birth through a cervix twice and I, and I had no idea. And we learned that. And my husband's like, that's like, what, what body part is that? What, what's a cervix? Oh, don't even get me started about how little we even understand about the cervix. It's, um, yeah, I mean, that's another Actually, thing. Actually, right? I'm like, going to give you, get you started. Tell us about the cervix. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, I, we don't even totally understand like how all of that works. How it's, amazing it's, it is. Yeah. How amazing it is. Like I mean, even dilation, the old way we talk about how right. to give birth, your, your cervix dilates right. an, a centimeter, an centimeter an hour. That's not even true. Well, and we've made birth into this process that is, you know, very over, overly medicalized, very scary, very anticipatory, and very, um, I think a lot of women allow their birth story to define them as a parent in those early days. And it's a really um, unhealthy space to be in. It leads to a lot of postpartum depression. It's really um, a negative thing, I think. And, uh, you know, that's a, a big thing that I wrote about in Bumpin' which is just that, you know, you've got to let go of a little bit of the judgment for yourself and others. Like amazing. If you had a great vaginal birth, I am so happy for you. I did not have that. And I forgive myself for ending up with a C-section. I was never even mad at myself. Like it was a C-section or- How did you reach <laughs> that point? Oh man, I had a crazy birth story. So here's, I'm yeah. a perfect example, right? I was writing a book about pregnancy. I wrote the section on birth before I even went through birth. I did- classes on various methods. I so studied you knew all these all methods. the stuffs. I knew all of the things. I knew all of the things. Bradley, hypnobirthing, Lamaze, like all of it. You know, meditation, yoga, like birthing stools. You I were did, set up. Like your birth I was, was going to be perfect. Up. My, wow. 
I knew my birth wouldn't be perfect because I had, I, because oh, you were also enlightened. Okay. Got it. I was, I was an enlightened, but overly researched, overly prepared person. Yeah. I had the aromatherapy. I had music, I had playlists. I had all of the things. Right. Um, but you know, my son has a giant head and he did not want to come out. So I waited until 41 and a half weeks. And then my, my, my bag finally broke, but I didn't go into labor. And so, um, you know, I went to the hospital after 24 hours because I knew that was the rule. And they said, oh, we want to, you know, we want to try to induce. And I was like, oh, I guess I have to because it's been 24 hours and I'm at more risk of infection. So like, I knew all this stuff Mm -hmm. because I researched it. So I was like, excuse me, I think I get two more hours um, before (laughs) we, before we induce, you know? So, and the guy was like, what? You know, I was like, it hasn't been 24 hours. Like, give me my 24 hours. (laughs) Give me my phone call. You know, it's so I, I just said like, listen, like I'm, you're not going to induce yet and I'm going to get my 24 hours and that's going to be the way it is. I want to rest. And they had to do it because I refused. And so, um, you know, and then they started the induction. Um, I didn't know it then, but I was in like really crazy back labor. So I was like completely unmedicated. I just had, I used nitrous for um, about 12 hours. And so it was pretty cool. Actually, I could feel my son. Like I, I'm sure you went through this too. Um, I felt him like traveling down. Like I could feel him making progress. Mm-hmm. I could feel things happening. I was like, this is incredibly painful. Cause I didn't have any time between contractions. I had like 30 seconds between contractions. Well, yeah, because yep. I had that person. same experience. One big, long contraction for 66 minutes. I thought I was going to explode. Yep. Yeah. I, I did that for 12 hours. Oh my um, goodness. It was, because it was your, the Pitocin, <laughs> sometimes the Pitocin will cause waves and then your body will be on waves and they're, sometimes they're in sync and you'll have massive, huge contractions. And sometimes it's just one big, long contraction. Yep. Well, what I found out was I was, that was happening, but I was also in back labor because yeah. he got stuck. He was posterior. Yeah. He, um, he was doing the final turn and he got stuck on the way out mm-hmm. and I felt him get stuck. And so I said, okay, well, I think I'm going to get an epidural just to like, see if maybe relaxing everything, but I never made it past six centimeters. Um, I was just a mess and he, his head was so big um, that it got stuck and it crushed my ureter, which is basically how you pee. And so I hadn't peed in 14 hours. They put in a Foley and it wasn't working. And so I'm basically oh, no, creatinine no. backed up. My kidneys were failing. All this crazy stuff was happening. Um, and I was like, well, we can keep trying. And they're like, oh, cool. Six centimeters. And I was like, I made it oh, one centimeter overnight. Gosh. It was brutal. I'm so yeah. sorry. Well, it's okay. It's, I know. You know even, like, we all feel for you right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, like I couldn't, I couldn't have done anything differently. I no, was in labor. It everything's perfect. hours. Yeah. I did everything the best I could. I waited as long as I could, but as soon as it looked like things were not going to be safe, you know, I just said like, I'd love a vaginal birth. That was my goal, but it's not going to happen for me. And all I want is for him to be healthy and yep. for me to be healthy. And that's what we're going to have to do. So let's, let's get this kid out of here before. And freaking Luya for Western medicine for oh, I know. doctors. <laughs> I know. I just, I never had a chance. I mean, yeah. he just, he, his head was too big. My pelvis was too small. You know, I didn't dilate. It would just, it was a mess, but you know, I was prepared. I knew everything. I was an advocate for myself. Like I had a doula. I had an amazing doula team. Doulas are the best, like incredible. I had a midwife. I had OBs, like I had everything and it still didn't go terribly well for me. I ended up recovering pretty quickly, but 
um, you know, it just taught me that you can't control birth. You can try, you can prepare, you can mm-hmm. do everything you can on the front end, but it's just not necessarily going to go the way you want. And when it doesn't, you can't let that be how you define yourself as a parent. Um, yeah. I didn't go into parenting feeling like a failure. I felt like my son and I are both healthy. And as soon as I got through the two weeks of night sweats, um, you know, it was, <laughs> yeah, but breastfeeding didn't go that well for me either because I was super anemic, um, you know, in the first six weeks. And so my, I had trouble establishing supplies. So like it was a whole cascading, crazy mm-hmm. mess of things, you know? Um, but in the end, like he's healthy, he's 15 months. He is funny and like the best. He's just the best. I love my kid. Like he is just so much fun. And he's super healthy. He rarely gets yeah. sick, even though like our breastfeeding journey ended around like 12 weeks because he just decided he was done. And that was that. And I said, okay. And then he yeah. never even would take my pumped milk. It was crazy. Interesting. But you know, opinionated yeah. little kid. Well, what this just goes to show you is that even though you were prepared and empowered and all the amazing words, it still didn't go your way. But would you define your experience as traumatic or just intense? I would say that because I knew what was going on and because I asked questions at every single turn, um, it was definitely not, for me, it was not traumatic. Um, Maybe I don't remember everything quite that well because, you know, birth is like kind of a weird haze anyway, but um, I would say it just was like a learning experience. I, I learned like, wow, it's really important to advocate for yourself and ask questions. Wow it's really, really important um, for you to understand what's happening to your body. Like I never didn't understand those things. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we had, we made decisions, you know, as a team, I had, you know, my doulas there, um, you know, to help out. So it was really, um, you know, it was really just like a group, a yeah. group thing. Well, and that's what I see in my own personal, my own personal experience is that people that, um, but do exactly what you did, get as educated as possible, advocate for themselves, have an amazing birth team, that they don't experience trauma. It doesn't like blindside them. Like it does no. if you're not ready. And yeah, because a lot of people get really well. And in hindsight, then do you think you were over prepared? Like, did some no. of it make it harder? Is it possible well, to be over prepared? I think that I don't think it's possible to be over prepared. I think it's possible to over-prepare and expect your preparation to result in control. And oh. I did not expect it. I did not expect control. Whoa. Say that again. That's amazing. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Don't expect your, your over-preparedness to result in control or to yes, be able to exactly. control it. Yep. That's amazing. Yep. Wow. Okay. So tell us more about the, the new book that's coming out. What are you really addressing? You said before we started recording that this is Nothing like this is on the market yet. Oh, well, it's still, it's, it's not a book yet. And it's, it's not even, it's, it's a proposal right now. So you're like the first one to be hearing about this outside Woo! of my immediately. Yeah. No, I, I listen, I think that, you know, Bumpin' is doing really well. Um, people are responding really well to it. I'm thrilled because honestly, I wrote it, you know, I wrote it for myself and my son as kind of a you know, this is, these are all the things that I wish I knew, but it's really resonating with people, I think, because it's not judgmental. It's just really Mm -hmm. like, here's the information. Your family is unique. You are unique. You need to decide what's right for you. You know, hypnobirthing might not be right for you. Bradley method might not be right for you. You have to find the right 
that's for sure. You have to find the right resources, the stuff that matches your, yeah. what your needs yeah. are. And I, is it written from the perspective then you wrote it like as you were pregnant. So it's probably got a very journey feel, like not a, it does. like a looking back and <clears throat> feel, but a, like a really raw in the moment perspective. Yeah. Right? Well, because I was learning all of it and at the same time I was writing about it. And so I just said, how do I think I can most be of service? Um, to everyone who's going through this. Like maybe I've already made a decision about something, but like I need to figure out what are all of the options here like that are safe. Um, That was like a core requirement, obviously. Like I'm not going to write about anything that's not, you know, either scientifically proven to be safe or not, you know, not of harm. Um, But, you know, I'm not going to just write like what I went through. I'm going to write like everything. Like here are all of your options. Here's what I explored you know, I write little snippets about, you know, what, what I didn't, didn't do and how things went for me just as a way of like making it real. Like I'm a real yeah, person who went through this. this. Yeah, for yeah. sure. But, That's but the cool. new book is actually, it's, it's going to be similar, but it actually is kind of a systems book. So, um, you know, when I started realizing that, uh, you know, pregnancy is the first time women really start to pay attention to their bodies and there's already a lot going on in many cases, um, I said, wow, well, this is interesting. Cause you know, actually I think a lot of women have no, like we have no clue where our vagina is. Mm-hmm. We have no clue also that our body is very interconnected. So like, of course it's like, duh. Yeah. Your body is super connected, but people don't think about the way that, you know, choices about sleep, about nutrition, about, you know, how they care for, you know, like their cycle their cycle is actually a really great indicator of overall health. Yes. But because we don't go into this experience with any of this core knowledge, things just kind of can go sideways. So it's just not, uh, it's not great. And so what I really want to do is, you know, in this new book, start earlier, start earlier and later, because I think another mm-hmm. thing we never talk about is perimenopause and menopause. But how That's do you, true. yeah, who talks about well, that? It's, it's almost like you, um, it's almost like, you reach the finish line before you even ran the race. Like when you get pregnant, that is like, do people realize what a biological miracle that is to actually even get pregnant? Like what your hormones have to do. I mean, I, I wanted to research miscarriage. I wanted to research, um, hormones. And I was, I, I had had four babies and I had no idea the dance between estrogen and progesterone and what that does in perimenopause, menopause, yep. menarche. Like I had no idea. Yep. So it's like we reached the pinnacle of femininity by making a baby before we even know like what we did. <laughs> Most women don't. I mean, if I had, I have explained ovulation to so many people. <laughs> she rolls her eyes. <laughs> Oh my God. I mean, well, (laughs) and to be honest, like, I'm not sure I totally understood it before I went into, yeah. I mean, because like no one explains this, but you know, I had all these friends and frankly, perfect strangers. I do all these events and they're like, okay, so what you're saying is I should have, I should have sex at the moment I ovulate. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I didn't know how that works. I, I just got pregnant whenever I wanted to, when I was young. And so I never even paid attention to ovulation, but I wanted to learn like, how do you actually get ovulate? I don't know. It was one of those late night Wikipedia. Yeah. Right. And, and then I was like, oh, oh, so mm-hmm. your safe time, because I would just avoid for birth control. I would just avoid this big chunk of the month. Luckily, I never got pregnant because it was the wrong chunk of the month. <laughs> You're lucky. I mean, it's, but it, it, this is, I had, you know, I've had a couple of friends who had trouble getting pregnant. And they're like, okay, well, but I'm doing it this way. And I'm like, 
Oh, no, no, oh, no. You're missing the boat every month. Have, have sex the days before you ovulate because like, guess how long sperm can live in there? Do you know the, the answer to this one? Uh, between, what depends on if it's male, female sperm, right? Between two and four days. That's actually like not completely, no, we're totally sure about the male, female thing. We think, we think that, but it, it can be up to five days and female sperm supposedly lives longer. That's how it's amazing. I never got pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wasn't doing it's, the math correctly. <laughs> it's very dependent upon like, you know, a lot of different factors, but yeah, you can, you can have sex five days before you ovulate and some people will get pregnant because the yeah. sperm, you know, and then we think it, we think you have a well, girl the, in that scenario. Yes, that's true. And then also learning that um, when you have sex, it affects the male too, um, because his his stores take time to to build up. I mean, we don't know anything about the female body, but we also don't really know that much about the male fertility either. Yeah. Well, and this is a huge this is a huge you know stump speech I like to give now, which is that if you are encountering fertility problems. About a third of the time, it's eggs and women. Yes, we know that. About a third of the time, we don't really know why it happens. A third of the time, it's sperm. It's the, so like, in, yeah. The other in, half of the equation. Of, yes. Instead of starting with testing sperm, or sorry, instead of testing eggs first, we should be testing sperm. But well, it's, it's like easier this, to you know, test the guy. It's so much easier. <laughs> it's non-invasive. I wish you like, could see her facial expression. She's great. It's like, come on, people. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Like it's just, it defies explanation. There's a great yes. company called legacy out there that does this at home with the same um, like clinical rigor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's great. The founder's super smart. Um, you know, but the same kind of clinical rigor that you would get going to a fertility clinic, it's really the only company I've come across that, that is, um, you know, that, uh, strong, but yeah, I mean, it's, um, it, it's time to change the conversation about fertility. It is not an egg problem all the time. Uh, it is an egg problem, maybe a third of the time, but we've got to start including men in this conversation. And really that was another goal with Bumpin. And certainly something I hope to accomplish with this new book too, which is that, you know, until we include men both in the pregnancy journey and also just, you know, as a knowledgeable, uh, you know, person about, you know, women's bodies, um, you know, nothing's going to change. So I've been actually very, very happy to learn that, uh, I have like a ton of male readers of Bumpin, which is a pregnancy That's book. That's awesome. A, yeah, I my my friends' partners end up reading it. Random. I mean, my favorite Amazon review I think is actually from a dude who was like unexpected pregnancy, had no idea what to do. He and his you know partner read it together, and it was like a super bonding experience for them. So. I think that, you know, that's another big thing. It's like, yes, we need to talk about male fertility, but we also need to include men um, and partners with, uh, with this journey from the beginning. Having mm -hmm. conversations early on in the process is the best way to end up with a family that you're like happy about, as opposed to, you know, feeling like you're not connected, you're not communicating. It's, it's a skill you have to practice early. So yeah. I encourage everyone to do that. Yeah. And it, not only will it, allow you to make cho better choices about your body, but enhances your relationship with your partner for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know like when we were looking at birth control options, my husband's like, okay, tell me how this works. Cause yep. he, he was a hundred percent in, um, we didn't want to do chemical birth control. So that means both of us need to be a hundred percent, you know, committed to this plan. And he yep. was like, he read all this stuff and he probably knew more about my body than I did at the beginning. Cause <sighs> I was busy breastfeeding and surviving, but it was, 
it was really cool to see that. And then the respect he has for my body as well. Like there's no shame in in anything. And it's never too late. Like it's never too late to start those conversations with your partner. Like I try to get, you know, because the audience for my book is people who generally have not had children. Although I am getting some second time moms. They're like, I wish this book had been around the first time, (laughs) you know, which is great. I'm like, oh my God, I taught you something? Perfect. That's awesome. That's always such a compliment, you know, but a lot of, uh, even some of my friends who have had kids multiple times read it and were like, damn girl, like, where were you? Yeah. Where were you three years ago? You know? So, um, so it's great. Yeah. Wow. 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 Yes. We could talk about this all day. So tell, tell everybody where they can find more about your book, about what you do. Yeah. Well, I mean, my book's available pretty much anywhere you want to buy it. Amazon bookshop is great. If you want to support local booksellers, um, that's generally where I direct people. If you'd like to buy the book, um, you can also find me on Instagram. I'm at Leslie Jay-Z and, uh, leslieshrock.com is my, um, URL and I'm sure it'll probably be in the description of yep. this it's lovely session, but I love hearing linked. from readers. If you have questions, if I can help in any way, like I get nice notes on Instagram and other ways all the time. It makes my day. So like, please, you know, don't hesitate to reach out if I can do anything to help on your journey. Yeah. So much. I really, really appreciate this. It's been fascinating to have this perspective. Yeah. Thank you. I enjoyed being here. Thank you. Please visit us at birthcircle.com join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience.